Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Dr. Marsha Chatlin, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. Today, we're looking at Law & Order Mothership Season 12, Episode 7, Myth of Fingerprints. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of the podcast Crime Writers On!, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Good evening, Kevin. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, yes, we don't get to see enough of each other, <laughs> do we? And rounding out the panel is our very special guest from the Office Hours podcast and author of Southside Girls, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. How are you? I am so excited to be here. It's unnatural. Should we call you Dr. <laughs> Marsha? Is that okay? Just for you two, you can call me Marsha, but let's keep things in line. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> I'm sure you run a tight ship. And Absolutely. You, uh, you're a, a Georgetown academic, and you have been very active in social justice issues, especially around Ferguson and some of these other very controversial things in the news. How is it that you find time to do something as lowbrow as come on this podcast and talk about law and order? <laughs> well, it, it, it takes like all kinds, right? And so one of the things I try to model to my students and my colleagues is that, yes, I am involved in very important justice work, but the only way you can actually enjoy your life is to watch a lot of television while you're doing it. So I try to prioritize uh, television as much as I do social justice. You have your pulse on what co-eds are thinking with your podcast. What is the next generation thinking about when it comes to criminal justice issues? Well, this is kind of interesting because I think for every generation in college, there's the big issue. I think when I was in college, the big issue was education reform. And it's kind of amazing to see so many young people who may not have had personal experiences with the criminal justice system so um, concerned about justice in terms of policies in prisons, um, the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And I think that uh, Michelle Alexander's A New Jim Crow has been such an important book for young people to really think about a system that unfortunately conducts so much of its business behind closed doors. Now, how did you get to be a, let me totally switching gears here, get to be a Law & Order fan? Okay, so Law & Order brings up a lot of emotions in me. Oh, so no. I need to just make some things clear. Okay, Do you so, want a tissue first? Or? <laughs> I may need one. Okay, so law and order as the kind of like frame that's used as dog whistle politics in 1968 by Richard Nixon, I do not like. Law and order, the one-hour drama, I love. <laughs> I was a kid who could kind of watch whatever I wanted on TV. And so one-hour dramas have a very special place in my heart. 
when my um, sister was like 16 and I was like nine, Murder, She Wrote was like our favorite show. So uh. the one hour drama just reminds me of home. It reminds me of old people who <laughs> murders happen every time they go somewhere. It's so perfect because it's like the one thing you can count on in a very unstable world. Well, you're right. This is, you know, unstable times, maybe some would end say. Times. End times. <laughs> end times. <laughs> I didn't say that. I just was hoping that that's what you were going to say. Well, I, I want to know, Marsha, does it make it harder to sort of tune out to the harsh realities that you see on the news to go to an escapist police procedural like Law & Order? Okay, so again, so many mixed emotions because I have a hard time as a professional historian watching history-based movies. Like, I'm the worst. I'll be like, oh my gosh, that refrigerator wasn't here in 1973. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that character didn't say that. So I'm the worst. But strangely, the one system that I am most critical of and have a lot of negative feelings about, the criminal justice system, if it is done by Dick Wolf, I can stand it. It's this incredible (laughs) power of this show. Wow. It's like Aaron Sorkin and and politics. This is a good episode that we're talking about then with uh, Dr. Chatelain, don't you think? Oh, I think, yeah, actually, I I think (laughs) this is actually right up her alley here. But before we get into this episode, I have to ask, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Rebecca knows that Goran and Eames, I feel like criminal intent is the greatest gift for nerds because it challenges you to imagine yourself as smart as Goran, even though you know you are not. Even though you know the answer already, you like to watch him think it out, right? Yeah, like he talks about Swiss cantons and he knows, you know, all sorts of languages. And the other thing I have to say about the law and order criminal intent that I really enjoy is the fact is that they try to do so many things in one episode that it its ridiculousness becomes kind of endearing because they really tried. It's like the student who does way too much research for a four-page paper. <laughs> There's something really special about that kid who tried so hard. Now, Marsha, I have a question for you. Who do you think would win on Jeopardy, you or Goring? Because I know that you uh, aspire to be on Jeopardy, and I think you could be a Jeopardy champ. Oh, my gosh. So Goran is so tortured. And he also has that like weird family system. He's got the like addict brother. The mom was in the hospital. He's got the like niece who comes back into his life. So I would let Goran win because (laughs) he's got a lot more to take care of than I could imagine. Wow. Okay, it's fair. Uh, Marsha, who is your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. I have to go with just the single Carver. Courtney B. Vance as A.D. Carver, I liked the fact that he was always kind of outside of the Goran Eames family system, but always caught on and understood it was for justice. So I know Jack McCoy is very popular on this podcast, but I have to say that Carver really has a special place in my heart. Carver really seems to like dig what Goran's laying down. Like He's willing to bend over a little bit and like bend things a little bit for him. Because McCoy's a little filled with rage. And so sometimes, <laughs> like in this episode, it's like, wow, dude, inside voice, right? But I think the other reason I have to say McCoy would be like my second, because he did this civil rights era show called I'll Fly Away. Oh, yeah. I don't know yeah, if you right. The yes, show. yeah. And although it was historically inaccurate, I did like that one hour as well. Yeah, he did that the season, I think the season right before he joined Law and Order. And uh, it was kind of a sweet show, but probably we say not completely historically accurate. Is that Um, the curse of having a PhD is that it just sucks all the joy out of those things? 
no fun at all, unless it involves a procedural. All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Myth of Fingerprints. Two Staten Island girls nearly swallow their chewing gum when they find poor Jimmy Foley with his head bashed in on his apartment floor. Someone hit him with the television, which is ironic because he was just about to switch to Hulu. (laughs) Briscoe and Green learn Foley's been getting special treatment because the drug dealer's been acting as a confidential informant for the cops. This takes them to Sing Sing to grill a con that Foley testified against. He says he's not responsible for the death, but there's one inmate serving a life sentence for a murder that Foley committed. His name is Bobby Campbell, and his co-defendant is the late Larry Martin. And who was the cop that put the two innocent men behind bars to get a promotion for it? Uh Uh-oh! It's Van Buren! (laughs) Of course I remember the case. I made grade because of it. Hey, one more dead crack dealer. Practically a public service. Well, I had a little luck. You know, eyewitness was a prostitute, said she heard shots, saw the co-defendants Campbell and a guy named Larry Martin running from the car where the victim was. And then we found the murder weapon in a dumpster. With Campbell's prints on it. <laughs> the detectives talked to Campbell's brother, Luke. He learned Foley was the real killer and went to his apartment to look for something to exonerate his brother. He says he tussled with Foley before the TV fell on them, and he claims self-defense. So right off the bat, they get, they get tricky here because this is definitely not a linear issue. They First, we think Jimmy is killed over a child support beef, right. and then it's because he's back to slinging drugs, and then he's a confidential informant, right. and maybe he's a rat. And so who here got whiplash from all of the patented law and order twists in the first 15 minutes? I loved the open of this episode. And I think it's really funny, first of all, that you characterized those two girls as Staten Island girls because they never said that in the episode. I said that when we were watching the episode (laughs) because they were so totally Staten Island girls. This whole episode is so straight out of central casting. It is every type of like cliche stereotype of white ethnics of New York. And you have no idea where they're from, but they're all from New York. And so I assumed that the girls were from Staten Island as well, based on nothing. (laughs) Based on the way they talked, based on the whole like, let me give you a key into his apartment. But I love the opening of this episode. I love visiting all those places, going to the, you know, child support uh, office. The family court. Yes, the family court office. Um, And, you know, hearing about how he didn't show up for court and then hearing about the big white guy and then Briscoe being like, there's no big white guy in the phone book. And the the whole, all the twists and turns that led before their field trip to Sing Sing, which, by the way, was also awesome. I thought was classic, really nicely done, and really nicely paced, and a good way to sort of like launch you in into like an I have no idea what's going to happen later scenario before, of course, we take a huge left turn later. The detectives do go on a road trip to Sing Sing to interview somebody there, and they're all by themselves while this inmate is the only guy in the cell block mopping the floor. <laughs> yes, all of the all of the cells are open, and there's even like one cell that has like nudie pics in the, you know, like <laughs> cheesecake pictures of ladies in the back. This is the most ridiculous representation of prison and he also has a gold chain on yeah do they let you have a gold chain in prison Uh, only if you want to get choked with it (laughs) and so yeah he's just out there with the mop and like in a kung fu movie this is how jackie chan would make his escape from prison right (laughs) yeah i mean i have never seen an interview of an inmate before done by cops in front of open cell doors Except on General Hospital, it happens all the time. Um, but not in this show. In this show, they're definitely usually in those interview rooms. I mean, we go to Sing Sing a lot, I feel, in Law Wait, and you Order. Always at Rikers. It's always that same Sometimes, conference room, right? Yeah. Occasionally, occasionally, they go on road trips to, to Sing Sing, though, or other prisons just to see inmates. But yeah, they usually don't allow inmates to talk to cops 
you know, yeah. while they're while they're doing their chores. Yeah. Oh, you want to talk to Bobby Campbell? He's out in the yard. Okay, we'll just go out there now. <laughs> hey guys, and remember Bobby. me? <laughs> Bobby's sideburns and his hair are impeccable. Also, I know. this is these are these things that I feel like Law and Order is usually good at casting people who are as depressing as the circumstance that they're in, except for this Campbell guy who looks very handsome. He was so handsome. Well, I'm so glad you that you said that first and not me. I feel like I'm always the one being like fawning over actors in this show, but Bobby Campbell was a stone fox. Isn't that how you know he was actually innocent? <laughs> That's an excellent point. He had all of his teeth and, yeah. It's true. He was white, you know. Yeah, exactly. right. Because they have to be looksist as well as problematic in all of these episodes. No one else is good looking except for the innocent guy. Now, like you said, we start off this episode right away with seeing someone before they were famous. Before they were famous. In the role of gum-smacking Staten Islander, it's Jennifer Goodwin. Jennifer Goodwin. Jennifer? Is that how you say it? I think that's how it's pronounced. It's, it's Jennifer. It's spelled as Jennifer. <laughs> Quit bitching. We're here. Thank God these heels are killing me. Jimmy! You in there? Jimmy! He's with that Connie Ditchko. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> she made it big as one of the three sister wives on the HBO classic Big Love and is Snow White on ABC's Once Upon a Time. That's right. And prior to that, she was a, apparently a Staten Island girl trying to get into her boyfriend's apartment. I love how these ladies are covered in glitter. <laughs> I mean, I just it's that attention to detail that makes Law and Order so warm and cuddly. Now, probably the highlight of the first half for me was when Luke Campbell, who is the brother of Bobby, he's working as a security guard. Oh, yeah. At a... At a, a <laughs> Some, some high end retail store, high probably retail on the upper store. East yeah. side, yes. And so uh, he's busting a shoplifter, and that's when Briscoe and Green. What else you got in the bag? How's it going, Mr. Campbell? I'll be with you fellas in a minute. You got a receipt? No, I think you're going to come with us now. And as they're taking him away, the shoplifter says, How does it feel? How does it feel? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, Green's like, Bring that t shirt back inside. Consider this your lucky day. Although, to be fair, if you've ever been shopping in New York, there is a whole thing where you have to like, ring a bell to get into a lot of those stores. And there is a cop in a lot of those stores or a security guard in a lot of those stores and this guy was working two jobs and apparently he really had his priorities straight he was basically the briscoe of security guards because he was really <laughs> giving it to that that poor poor girl yeah he was doing everything right including killing the, <laughs> the guy who set up his brother what evidence did he think he was going to find in the apartment exactly? Like a note that says, frame this guy, like on a to-do list? Like his diary. Dear diary, <laughs> boy, did I uh, get out of a tough jam today. <laughs> you know, so one other thing that I loved about the first part of this episode was, I love any episode where you sort of get like the Van Buren backstory, and hearing mm. that this case, the one that sent Bobby Campbell and Larry Martin to prison for that murder, it was this case that made her get to be a lieutenant, that gave her that promotion, and that she keeps hearing people about behind her back, sort of like saying, oh, it's because she's a woman, it's because she's black, and that this case would actually have high stakes for her. I don't know. I really love that dynamic. I love getting that just that sort of Van Buren backstory because in so many episodes, she literally is the character sort of filling in the exposition and the interstitial, you know, um, squad room scenes. You know? Well, what happened with the blood sample? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she is one of my favorite characters, and I do love that. Here's one of the things. Van Buren is fantastic, and this is part of the law and order issue of the great acting by some and then the not so great acting by others. Oh, you're going to name and names? <laughs> no. Do it. Every, A for effort, everybody. But like sometimes <laughs> when you get... Um, you I know, love it when a college these... professor says A for effort. <laughs> yes. At a highly no. regarded institution. <laughs> no, I mean... 
you know, some people were not living their best lives on this show, but it's hard because you do have some real strong acting and everyone has to kind of like, I don't know, arrange themselves around it. It's like a really great piece of furniture and then everything (laughs) else is made out of, I don't know, cardboard. (laughs) I don't know. I actually think that's a really good way to describe it. Although I do think in some episodes, some people sort of like bring their A game. And there is one notable person we'll talk about, I'm sure, in in part two, that I think kind of brought their A game in this episode. Somebody I very often am derisive towards. Is that is it fair to say? I don't know. You haven't said it yet. So I don't know. It's it's Serena Sutherland. (laughs) See, that's the natural reaction everybody has, right? But she This was one of her better ones. That's right. She gets to play best of Van Buren's Nancy Drew in this episode. It's pretty fun, actually. (laughs) So you liked it when the girls went all Scooby Doo and did the detective work themselves? Excuse the me. The women. The oh, okay. <laughs> I did like it. I liked it a lot, actually. There is a theme that also runs through all of the Law and Orders. Is this idea of like the guy who's like doing right by the lady? There's always this kind of like. There's a moment where they go and talk to the woman who's like scorned by the child support stuff. Yeah. And she talks about the death of this man in front of the child, but then sends him to the other room to talk about a fight at the child support <laughs> hearing. So in the Law and Order universe, trauma is always relative, right? So like the kid can know that this guy's skull get bashed in, but like I would hate for him to think that mom's boyfriend would ever scuffle with anyone. It's so strange. It is strange. And it's, I think, I got the impression Wait, that's she the was... the kid's dad, too, right? Well, I, I got yeah, the, absolutely. I, yeah, don't worry. Your dad got his head bashed in. <laughs> yeah, oh, I can't talk to you about the other thing, though. That's exactly right. Go into your room and play. <laughs> and keep the door open. It's four feet away. Now I'm going to start yelling to this cop yeah. about your yeah. deadbeat father. Yeah, don't get don't get your uh, throat caught up in the Venetian blinds, though. <laughs> And the other, the other part of it, I mean, is the classic Law and Order where um, this is all about kind of normalizing the police state, but people are not afraid of police officers. So it's like, can we talk to you? It's like, well, I'm going to continue looking under the hood of my car, or I'm not nervous <laughs> at all. I got, hey, this this prison floor is not going to mop itself. <laughs> I did like, however, when the um, boyfriend of you know the, the the first suspect, the big white guy, when he just mm-hmm. takes off his shirt and hands it to them, and he's just like. <laughs> There you go. All I could think of was, ew. <laughs> like, if, if they think that was the actual shirt he was wearing, like, a couple of days ago when this guy died, and it's the same one, ew. Wait, <laughs> wait you thing. mean the two guys that were looking at the, the bastion head on the floor, and you're like, oh, this blood is one thing, but sweat? <laughs> ew. <laughs> Now let's look at the second half of this episode. Because Luke Campbell's defense will revolve around his brother's innocence, Sutherland and Van Buren try to shore up the old case. The eyewitness won't talk, but they still have Bobby Campbell's fingerprints on the gun. All the original prints were destroyed in a flood at the crime lab. Convenient. (laughs) But photographs of the prints are still with the cops. McCoy asks the prints instead be sent to the FBI to be reexamined, which makes lab director Lisa Russo upset. The feds find that Lisa's been fudging her findings and calling prints that aren't a match a match. I always thought you just laid prints on top of one another like tracing paper. It's common misperception. So what about our print? Well, according to the trial transcript, your original examiner testified that she observed six matching points. I couldn't even figure out how she'd found six. I mean, they just aren't there. And all this means what? It's not Campbell's print? I can't really say whose it is. 
The DA starts the paperwork to free Bobby Campbell, but it's too late for Larry Martin because he got shanked years ago. Van Buren arrests her old friend Lisa because Martin went to prison because of her and because he died there. They charge the lab tech with manslaughter. On the stand, Lisa's defense is, hey, you know they were guilty. But the jury doesn't buy it, and she's convicted. Meantime, Van Buren is troubled that the case she made her career on was built on bad evidence. In a moment of self-reflection, she laments all the ways that cops push the boundaries to get a conviction. Well, I love how when the fingerprints don't match, McCoy says, okay, I'll start the paperwork to get the white guy out of prison. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, they needed a Hudson University Law School Innocence Project <laughs> on this. Because, I mean, I think, that, I think that this is why these episodes, especially in that part of, you know, that second half, always kind of make me a little sick to my stomach because justice is delivered so hastily. Yeah. And it's like this idea. I love Diane Weist, though, her, like, beautiful declaration of what the law is supposed to do. And I'm like, have you seen this show before? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the Weist years were a definite departure oh. from the pro-prosecution execution lean that the show typically has. I mean, Weist is like straight she is lady up justice. She's granola eating Mother Earth Lady <laughs> Justice like you freaking read about. Because not only, of course, later, of course, we, we find out that she also drops the charges against Luke. You know, he actually did kill that guy. We kind of forgot about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they probably have a form like B-15 that's just hanging around on the top. To, oh, another guy got to get out of prison. Well, that one piece of evidence. Sure. That's how all the prosecutors do it, right? Right. We we do have like a very, very law and order scene um, at the beginning of this part where um, Nancy Drew and Bess, a.k.a. Van Buren and Sutherland, go to talk to Brenda, who was the prostitute, who was the witness in the original conviction uh, that uh, Van Buren got her collar on. And we get the very, very typical woman like, I don't want my husband to hear that I'm talking to you. Honey, can you just give us a minute? Listen, I pulled my life together after this trial. I got straight. I got my GED. You can't just walk in here and start accusing me of lying. We're not accusing you of anything, Miss Warren. I think you should both just leave. She's, like, made a new life for herself. Like, she's not the person she used to be. Right. It is such a law and order thing. Like, they yes. always, always talk to, like, some. It was usually a prostitute. And now you meet them, and they have, like, a husband and a nice house. And, like, no one can know. What have you got they, against prostitutes cleaning themselves up, Rebecca? Nothing. It's You're just, a just projecting overused. a little bit. <laughs> well, one of the things I also wonder in the law and order world, what kind of relationships do people have? There is so much secrecy in every marriage. <laughs> It's like, you know, when I go to Safeway, my husband knows about it. It's like this whole idea that, like, if you close a door in a room, then it's a cone of silence. That's right. And, like, the other person, and then you imagine that her husband will not ask why two detectives came to talk to you and you had to close the door. Right. How come there was nobody on your side of the family coming to the wedding? <laughs> right. So um, we have to talk about the real star of this episode of Law & Order. Who's the, that? Lisa Russo's impeccable hair. <laughs> oh, my God. The hair moves with the feeling of the character. You it's got amazing. it. Because when she was in jail, man, did yes. that hair get messed up. But in every other scene, man, I don't know a lot about that actress, but she was an ice queen. Like, she could have played, like, a villain in, like, a 1980s soap opera starring maybe the Cassidines. Like, she could have been one of those people. <laughs> impeccably, impeccably turned out. And every line that she delivered it looked like it had some frost, like, kind of, like, spewing from her mouth at the she same time. She was giving us complete and total Roxy heart in that last scene when she's in her prison gear, but, you know, the hair is still holding on for life. The other thing, it's like, I, I don't know, 
in Law and Order, it only takes what, like four days for a trial to come to its <laughs> end. So her her blonde is still as blonde as it was that day in the fingerprint lab. Now we have two women who are the heads of their departments, Van Buren and Russo. So Marsha, in your view, does Lisa fudge her lab findings because she wants to be seen as a leader in her own lab or because she wants to give the cops what they want? Deep down inside, she wants to give the cops what they want. I have no idea what her motivation is because it doesn't matter. It's amazing. I think that if we were to get a spinoff show about the Lisa Russo story, there might have been like a grifting dad who <laughs> she felt never had what was coming to him. I mean, I could actually see a really good Dick um, Wolf production through this. You know, I, I mean, her baggage is like so deep and I don't think it was about helping the cops. I think it was just getting the trash off the street. This lady really, really unnerved me. And again, I was I wasn't sure what to do with this character, if I liked the acting or if I thought it was ridiculous. But then what she did was ridiculous. So I think she won. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I loved the contrast between Lisa Russo and the FBI guy who was like Mr. Schlubby <laughs> FBI guy. who was like, dear NYPD, your fingerprint evidence is bullshit. But there is actually like a big criminal justice issue that isn't even it, this is what's happening, but they don't even touch on it. You know, he just says, send the prince of the FBI. There is a lot of people believe a real problem with the fact that evidence is analyzed by a lab that works for the prosecution. I mean, this is actually a known problem. This is why people with money get better defenses because they can afford their defense can afford to hire independent labs to do their testing. But that's not even touched on here. It's just sort of like she works no, in the lab. It's like, <laughs> well, she's so kooky. Well, the thing that's so interesting also is that, like, as someone who has her second PhD in forensic files, I have remembered episodes <laughs> where they show, like, bad lab work. And it's like the person's eating a turkey sandwich and cutting up, like, human cartilage <laughs> in the same plate. And so this is actually a huge problem in some jurisdictions where faulty lab work is actually not considered enough of a basis to reopen cases. So this is one of these things that I, I feel like if this was Law & Order SVU, there would be a moment where everyone was sitting around the table sharing the statistics of how much bad crime <laughs> lab stuff happens. But All while eating is, sandwiches, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But because this is an original recipe, they do a little less of that we're going to directly tie this to the headlines in ways that are legible and have a PowerPoint with numbers. <laughs> well, just going back to what um, Russo's motivation was, I think we nailed it on the head when she said, do we have a cop in a lab coat? I think that Lisa Ooh. Russo thought of herself as one of the cops. And I think she liked the buddy buddy. It's you and me working on this together kind of thing. I think that's what she was motivated by. There's an amazing scene, if you watch this as closely as I did, where um, in the courtroom, she's also wearing these like really icy blue colors. And then at one moment, Van Buren is like in black and she's in white. And they're supposed to kind of be two sides of this spectrum. It became very um, Greek tragedy in those last few scenes. But the thing that I always return to about these episodes is like, why did it take so long to catch this lady? Hmm. There was also a lot of uh, head shaking by Van Buren sitting in the gallery like, oh, no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because Lisa Russo was good people. She's with, good people, yeah. With yeah. impeccable hair. Now, I, I think this episode is a great bookend to one we featured recently from season four called Competence. That was the one in which Van Buren shot a kid. And, and then when we see her character defend herself, not just as an officer, but as a black female officer. And I think the quote she said in that one was like, I'm not just any cop. 
Now here, she struggles with the knowledge that the case that made her career was built on a false conviction. And far from being a statement about affirmative action, this episode makes her question her long-held belief that she had the competence to achieve her rank, that she sort of she earned it based on this great bust. And we very rarely have sort of that kind of deep moment of self-reflection in Law and Order. Yeah, I think they should avoid doing it. Uh, (laughs) I think that that we should just stay with dead bodies and broken TVs. No, but seriously, I think that there's a way that, you know, this is supposed to be a kind of a larger conversation about, you know, Van Buren's own professional identity. She's among, you know, a few, you know, probably women of color, though there is Cordova who's like in the background in this episode. And I have a lot of hopes for her. Um, But I think that- she keeps coming and handing people paper. (laughs) She's got to be more aggressive if she's going to, you know, make a name for herself. I mean, I think that they're trying to capture something that I think is very real when people talk about race in the workplace. But I think a more compelling question is like the deep desire to allow, you know, the fingerprint lady to go unchecked or, you know, for the white, you know, falsely accused to to get so much sympathy. So I think that like when law and order tries to do like race and justice, it's never quite very good because it's always like five lines in the episode. And so I think that there are some interesting ways to think about also the very real, um, pressures and questions about how you diversify something like a police force that has so much baggage in a city like New York. So again, A for effort on that part. I thought this was more about her being in this episode a woman than being a black woman. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons why she stood by Lisa Russo's side for so long was because they were just like two women, you know, in leadership roles, trying to just get by in a man's world. I mean, there were some throwaway lines along those lines. And she really wanted to believe that Lisa wasn't a total complete fraud because uh, she's afraid that she's a total complete fraud, you know, deep down inside. Of course, until, you know, Lenny Briscoe gives her the comfort that she needs to make her feel better because... He's Lenny Briscoe, and he can do that. You know, you nudge a witness in the right direction at a lineup. The gun was in plain view, not under the seat. We do that all the time. You wouldn't have passed off those prints to the DA unless she told you there was a match. Closing that case got me noticed, Lenny. And I used to hear the whispers and the chatter behind my back. She got it, because she's black. She got it because she's a woman. And I never listened to that crap because I knew I had earned it. You made lieutenant because you're a great cop. This one case isn't going to undo all of that. I'm not so sure, Lenny. I'm not so sure. I would love for Van Buren to just have like five really good sessions with a therapist. Maybe that (laughs) therapist who helped Gorin with his like, anger and depression because there's always this sense that the people on these these shows are so deeply troubled but they never seek help unless they've done something that forces them into it so i think (laughs) law and order therapist office is the next part of the franchise that i'm waiting to see go immediately to olivette's office (laughs) do not pass go you shot somebody Talk it out. Well, that's one of the things about SVU. You know, they always have like, you know, B.D. Wong or J.K. Simmons just like lurking around the office, giving them free (laughs) therapy at the same time that they're doing their job. I'm I'm married to a therapist. And when he sees like the B.D. Wong years, he's like, this is the most unethical thing I've ever seen. (laughs) He is so troubled, just like the way that I'm troubled that Law and Order makes people comfortable with like 
the um, police state and the violation of search and seizure and intimidation. He's like, um, this does not happen in therapy. Yes, this definitely looks like the mark of a psychopath. And by the way, <laughs> how are things working out with your mother? <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the Headlines. This episode was inspired by the controversy surrounding Oklahoma City Crime Lab supervisor Joyce Gilchrist. She was considered to be a superior DNA technician, finding matches in criminal cases that other technicians could not. Colleagues joked that Gilchrist had magical powers. Her 20-year career came under scrutiny in 2001, when Jeffrey Todd Pierce sought to have the DNA in his rape case conviction retested. At the time of his arrest in 1986, Pierce had a clean record and a solid alibi that could not otherwise be linked to the crime. But Gilchrist testified that Pierce's hairs matched those found at the scene. New testing exonerated him and Pierce sued the city for millions. The scandal caused officials to re-examine some nearly 1,700 cases Gilchrist worked on. The discredited technician was involved in putting 23 people on death row, with 11 of them already being executed. The Innocence Project says they've exonerated 10 people Gilchrist helped convict. Gilchrist was never charged with a crime, but was dismissed after the Pierce case. She later sued the lab, saying she was fired for reporting sexual harassment. Joyce Gilchrist died in 2015. Now, in the past two years, the cause of wrongful convictions has risen in the public consciousness. And we know that fingerprinting and even DNA testing is reliant on subjective observation by technicians. And its reliability decreases with fewer markers, as was demonstrated in this episode. So, Marsha, what happens when we as a society or worse, we as jurors view this kind of evidence as magic? Oh, my gosh, this is so painful. I actually started my career at the University of Oklahoma, and I lived in Oklahoma City. And, you know, I, I think that part of the problem is that we don't have the opportunity to get a really sound education in legal stuff and criminal justice while we enjoy these shows. And so while I love watching these shows, I also love learning about the kind of intricacies of the law so that I can be a better citizen. And so I think that after the OJ trial, when everyone became a DNA expert and <laughs> shows like CSI, you know, rose to the level of providing a civic education, you know, we, we really lose out. So I think that, you know, civics, we have to rewrite the civics book to not only be the state constitution and the constitution of the United States, but really what our rights are as citizens and these different cases to help people better understand that science is also relative. Um, it's not an absolute in the ways that we want to imagine it. Well, I don't agree with 100% with that. I think that science isn't relative, but bad science is no, relative. there you go. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I mean, this is the problem, right? We saw this in that documentary, The Staircase, the Michael Peterson case. Oh, my gosh. Which has an incredible example of a, of a state expert in blood spatter 
just making shit up, just like yeah. doing experiments that make no sense. And then we have the world's foremost expert in forensic blood spatter evidence, Henry Lee, get on the stand and say, this expert is total bullshit. And the jury still convicted Michael Peterson. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, but because there is a tendency, I think, to believe the state's experts. And I think that does come from this sort of magical effect that like they wouldn't have arrested him if he was wasn't they, yeah. guilty. Right, right. And they kind of go into this in sort of the fictional law and order world just a little bit where, you know, we always see the detectives come in and say, get me something right. or look at this. And there is, you know, pressure on the technicians to find something. Right. And, you know, because none of them want to hear, eh, we can't conclusively do this or do that. In that way, I can understand Gilchrist in real life and this character's desire to come up with something that the cops want. But you you can't say that you should make it up out of whole cloth and violate somebody's constitutional rights. I mean, I think it's that perfect like intersection of the motivation of the individual examiner who wants to, you know, help win cases, but also some of the conditions in which this work is happening, right? So if we don't have the state resources for clean labs to train people to do this type of work, to have some types of audits and checks and balances. To put a lunchroom requires... in the lab so they're not having turkey <laughs> so sandwiches. So not a turkey yeah. sandwich, which happens on this episode. Um, you know, someone's eating in this the place that they're doing their work. And so I think that... <laughs> oh my God, it's Miracle I Whip. <laughs> I think it's contingent on all of us to make sure that these jobs that are public service jobs are amplified and supported in a way that reduces the possibility that this behavior goes unchecked. Now, when we talk about like wrongful convictions in the news being discovered and, and cases being overturned, some of us like to believe that the results of were based on errors or on confirmation bias. But man, it's, it's horrifying to think that it was outright fraud. Yeah. And one of the things that I that is most disturbing, obviously, about the death penalty and the reason why a oh. lot of people, um, I think, I hope the tide is turning away from it is because obviously it's an irrevocable punishment. But also it has been shown in many, 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 many cases that there was bad science or bad process that led to these death penalty convictions. Um, the one element of this episode that I'm totally going to call bullshit on and I am backed up by the real story and they're from the headlines case is Lisa Russo being prosecuted. You know, Jack McCoy is very quick to be super sanctimonious and has like the most Jack oh. McCoy of Jack McCoy. He goes total Atticus on that. Case after case, you got on a witness stand cloaked in the aura of an expert and declared a scientific certainty when in fact numerous other examiners had said that they were not a match. Oh, they were guilty. Everybody knew that. Not until you decided to declare the prince a match. He totally does. And we have seen Jack McCoy bend the rules, commit Brady violations, push the limits over and over again to get what he wants. And then we also hear the cops having that conversation. Briscoe saying, like, you say the gun was in plain sight, but it was actually under the seat. We do that all the time. And so she gets prosecuted. I'm not saying she didn't deserve it, but I just don't think it's realistic. I think that what her lawyer said at the beginning is what? She'll get six months unpaid leave and retraining and she'll be back on the job. It's probably more like what actually happens in a lot of these cases, right? 
there is a case out of Massachusetts yes. where there was a similar yes. thing. Um, a technician. The drug lab case. was Yeah, she wasn't even, you know. Doing the work. No, she was just kind of looking at the slide <laughs> and going, yeah, that's a match. And enjoying being a witness and, in trial. Yeah, in yeah. hundreds and hundreds of cases. And uh, she did get jail time for that crime. And I, I'm trying to remember the, the thing that gave her away at one point was that she was just working too fast. She was just, <laughs> she was like, how did she just like do, you know, 50 examinations uh, on Thursday? In 24 minutes. Yeah, 24 minutes. Yeah, that, <laughs> that looks like cocaine. Next. Yeah, Lisa Russo, at least, um, I think, put up, I thought, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm on Lisa Russo's side in this, <laughs> but I did appreciate her defense, which was basically that this is a subjective of science, that this is a subjective well, this, evidentiary problem, and that's my opinion, right? Well, this is the part that was a little, like, scary, because if you pull back from the episode, the FBI guy, in all his glory, was like, yeah, six point, ten point, well, I guess it's up to the person, and I, I, I wish they would just, like, kind of scratch the record and say, like, what? Because, <laughs> I mean, isn't this the whole basis that, yes, she was putting her thumb on the scale, but the scale kind of has no standard either. Yeah, but she was able to leave a pretty good thumbprint on that scale while she did it. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Hey, where can our listeners follow you online? They can follow me on the Twitters at Dr. M-C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N. And they can also subscribe to my podcast, Office Hours, a podcast where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can listeners follow you? They can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Reb Lavoy. And to hear my conversations with students about what's most important to them, they can just listen in at our uh, kitchen table every night. That's I... <laughs> an audience of two. <laughs> you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act, fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know more about what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.